Good morning, everybody. Um, so the lesson this morning uh, related to the scripture reading, we're going to be looking at lessons with the tabernacle um, in the Old Testament. The tabernacle that was constructed when they were, li- when they were with God at Mount Sinai. Um, if you're like me, for a very, very, very long time, uh, the tabernacle was a very ambiguous kind of, it's a structure that I was like, well, I don't really know what exactly that is. I don't really know what it looked like, but obviously it's important. And obviously God, in some sense, was dwelling there among the people. Um, and as we're teaching through the book of Numbers this year, and Lord willing, eventually we'll be studying through Exodus, um, it's really critical that we understand what this structure is. And so the goal of this lesson is, by the end of this lesson, that we'll all have kind of a clear picture of what the tabernacle was, what the importance of the tabernacle was, and also lessons that actually are very relevant for us that the tabernacle teaches us. So one of the things I want to point out kind of to introduce this is the tabernacle and its structure And I think this is true of so many things in the system of worship that God gave to the nation of Israel, that the tabernacle and its structure, it serves as object lessons that illustrate the nature of God's relationship with his people. And so I'll say that again because I think that is really important to understand, is that the tabernacle, really along with all of the things that God gave Israel in the law for worship, that they were object lessons that illustrate God's relationship with his people. Maybe an easy point of reference for that, like the altar where they would give sacrifices. You know, one of the things that they would give is a lamb, and Jesus was the lamb of God. So these animals were illustrations. They were object lessons that what they do is they illustrate, again, God's relationship with his people. And what we're going to see is the tabernacle is no different. This wasn't just some pointless structure that was pretty, but there was a clear importance to it. I think one of the things that highlights the importance of this structure, so starting in Exodus 25, literally the rest of Exodus, which is 40 chapters, is dedicated to the the construction for the tabernacle. So the Exodus itself is about 14 chapters, whereas the tabernacle is 15 chapters. And I think the tabernacle, the chapters are even longer. So really just textually, more space in the book of Exodus is actually dedicated to the tabernacle more than the Exodus itself. Um, I want you to remember the scripture reading just in terms of 25, 1 through 9 especially. God tells Moses to um, instruct Israel to raise a contribution um, of all of the materials that would be needed to make it. I want you to look at chapter 29 though. The end of chapter 29 verse 43 through 46. So here, um, God is kind of talking about the importance of the tabernacle in verse 43 when he says, I will meet there. He's talking about the tabernacle. He says, I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it, that is the tabernacle, shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. We talked about that in the book of Numbers. Verse 45, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that, 
Notice this. This is something, by the way, that if, if you mark your Bible, this is a phrase to underline or highlight. That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the tabernacle was constructed because they weren't just delivered out of Egypt to become a nation to receive a law, but they came out of Egypt specifically so that God could dwell among them in some sense, just like the Garden of Eden that we studied this morning. Look at the end of Exodus. So there's kind of like an interlude where the people make a gold calf. Moses then destroys it and makes the people drink its dust and he goes back up on the mountain to intercede for the people. All of that still relates to the tabernacle because when they made the golden calf, God said, I'm not going to dwell among the people. So no more of this. I'll send you to the land, but I'm not going to dwell among you because you are too stubborn. You're too wicked. Moses begs God. He says, if you're not going to go with us, then there's no point in even going to the land of Canaan. Please forgive the people. Please dwell among us. Among us. God forgives the people. And then after that, they construct the tabernacle because God then renews his promise that he will indeed go with the nation among them. Chapter 40, where the book ends, look at verse 34. So first God speaks the tabernacle into existence by giving its measurements and materials. Then they construct it and then Moses sets it up. And in verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to, to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So that kind of gives you an idea of its importance. And I was debating whether or not to give a visual. So like I made like a blueprint, top-down blueprint of the tabernacle. There's a lot of measurements that are given because the tabernacle is literally to be created with no human interpretation, with no human invention of measurements or material. It is all measured. Every piece is joined, measured, created exactly as God specifies from the top to the bottom. So if you're looking at it like a blueprint, these four, like these colored lines here, the blue, purple, and scarlet, gray, red, brown, there were four coverings. We'll deal with that more in a moment. And then really you just have two rooms. It's, really, it's a really, really simple building actually. The entrance is on the eastern side, on the right side, blue, purple, scarlet. The screen is held up by five golden pillars. When you go inside that first room now, you've got a lamp on the left, table on the right, and an altar of incense in front of you, and that's it. It's literally the only things that are inside of that first room. And then in front of, or rather behind, the little altar of incense, you've got another screen that is the entrance to the second room and only the high priest would enter that second room just once a year. And when you go inside of that room, you have one, one object. That's it. And that's the Ark of the Covenant. And by the way, the bars would literally always be in the Ark of the Covenant. They were never to be taken out. Um, so you have a two-room rectangular structure with four objects in it. Imagine going into someone's house. They don't even have a couch. They have one little table They've got a lamp, and then they've got like a little, you know, I don't know, it's an incense altar. Imagine like, wow, your house is really empty, right? This is a really simple structure. And then the second room, again, just one, one object in the second room. So I think it's helpful just to know this is a very, very simple and easy to diagram object. And this is kind of, I tried to make it to scale. It's kind of easy to do that because the golden boards that were the wall on the inside they're a cubit and a half each, 20 boards going all the way across. So if you just kind of like measure everything around a cubit and a half per board, you can kind of get an idea of like the way that things should look. 
Um, so this is generally, just in terms of like rudimentary blueprint, this is, this is what you've got. So then what are kind of the principles we're going to be looking at? And I'll just say right away, this is going to involve a lot of applications that relate to our classes on unity and diversity. So I think it'll be really encouraging to see how that works here. But what are the principles we're going to see? For one, we're going to see that there are a variety of materials that have a variety of functions. Lots and lots of variety and diversity in the materials that were used here. Every piece had a very specific function and those functions were actually necessary to unify the tent together. We're going to see that every piece of the tabernacle was actually designed to be dependent on another piece um, in order to fulfill its function. I think that's actually a point I have here. But anyway, uh, each piece and function was composed by God as he desired. So again, like no part of the tabernacle was of man's invention or opinion. It's God laid it all out by his word, which is very important for what the tabernacle was, which can make the reading of it all seem dry. But that's the point. This is all God designed, head to toe. Um, everything's put where he desired it to be put. And all materials were either joined or knit together. There were no independent pieces. You can probably already see how the body of the tabernacle kind of points to some lessons we'll be looking at. And again, each piece, literally every piece, there were no independent pieces. Everything was reliant on another piece in order to properly fulfill the function that God designed for it, right? So that's what we're going to see. So that's the overview. I want to spend a little bit of time looking at the diversity of the materials and some lessons we get from this. So I'm going to spend just a little bit of time very generally going over Exodus 26 just to kind of give you an idea of what, again, maybe more specifically this would have looked like. So if I can like reach into your mind and the visual light switch, you know, in your imagination, if I can just turn that switch on and this is going to be kind of like, you know, visualize it, try to picture this. So verses 1 through 14 in Exodus 26, um, I'll read verse 1. It says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material, and you shall make them with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. These ten curtains, five of them were knit together, and then the other five were knit together, and then golden clasps would join them. So that's your first layer. So your first layer is this very beautiful curtain that you would really only see from the inside. It's a very beautiful curtain made of very beautiful materials. It's very artistic. It's very colorful. Um, ten separate curtains knit and joined together. Second layer now going on top of that. Goat's hair would be intertwined together, tied together. Eleven curtains. So you'll, make, you'll see that in verse 7. This is verse 7 through uh, 13. Eleven curtains now were knit or joined together. They were joined with clasps, so clasps of bronze instead of gold. So these were all knit and joined together to make the second layer. And we're not done yet. The third layer is in verse 14, ram skins dyed red. And I don't think there's any single ram big enough to cover the whole tabernacle, right? So this would have been, you know, many animals and their skin, again, being joined together to form a covering. And then in Verse 14 again, there is a final covering of uncolored, so it's not dyed, it's just animal skin, final covering, fourth covering of animal skin, not dyed any color. Um, the reason I say animal skin, the New American Standard says porpoise skin, maybe, 
Um, ESV, I think, just says animal skin because it, the Hebrew word is semi-ambiguous. Some say badger skin. I think it's just kind of like difficult to know, okay, what's that Hebrew word mean? It's an animal skin. I don't know what kind. But So you imagine if you're looking at the tabernacle from the outside, you see leather as it's covering. And when you go inside, I don't think any light is going to be piercing through the ceiling. So the only light on the inside would be the lampstand actually inside of it. So four coverings, and it would have been, again, very thoroughly covered. Verse 15 through 30, you have the walls of the tabernacle that are all measured. And here's what we have in verse 15 through 30. So verse 15, you shall make the boards of the tabernacle of acacia wood standing upright. Verse 16, 10 cubits shall be the length, so that's how tall it is of each board, and one and a half cubits the width, so across. So these boards would be fitted to each other with sockets, so every single board would have on the bottom what's called two tenons, and then there would be a socket of silver at the base that would connect the boards together in their tenons. So there would be sockets on the bottom of silver, 20 boards on the north, 20 boards on the south, eight boards on the west and the very back, all of gold, and then there would be five bars of gold. So that starts in verse 26. There would be bars that would pass through the boards to join them and connect them and hold everything together as a strong structure. So you had many parts here that were just holding everything together. Verse 31 through 37, I'll actually, I'll read this here, 31 through 37. So this is the veil on the screen. And these are the um, fabrics that would have served as the entryways, both to the outside and the second room. Verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold, on four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps and shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil. And the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the most, or the holy of holies. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy of holies. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. You shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen, so this is now the entrance on the outside, the screen of the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. You shall make five pillars of acacia wood for the screen and overlay them with gold their hooks also being of gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So that's it. Um, so for this inner veil, it's, again, fine linen, blue, purple, and scarlet, like the first covering on the inside. Um, but this, this inner veil would also have the work of cherubim. It's hung on four pillars of gold, sockets of silver. There's clasps of gold hooks that hold the veil in place so that it's joined onto these pillars. And then similarly, the entrance screen, same material, but no cherubim. Just might be interesting to take note of that. Fine linen, blue, purple, and scarlet material, five pillars of gold, and those are on bronze sockets with hooks of gold that, again, are holding it in place to serve as the entrance. So we're going to use some of this as an illustration as we go into more of the application points. But to kind of start with application, I want you to think about how the diversity we see in the body of the tabernacle really serves to illustrate the nature of how Christ's body 
has also been designed to be something very diverse and similarly structured. So for this, um, I'll ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 12. And again, as we look at these passages in the New Testament, I want you to be thinking about how we see the language in these passages really connecting back to the tabernacle, but also how the tabernacle, again, how it illustrates the points that we see about the body of Christ and how the body of Christ is to be structured around Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to read this in sections. So we're going to start with verses 4 through 14 in 1 Corinthians 12. And again, this is how the body of the tabernacle and how diverse it was, how that illustrates the diversity in the body of Christ. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many." The first point is that God designed his body to be unified and held together by a diversity of members and functions. And that diversity doesn't divide the body. And when you think about like in a worldly way, how do people usually find unity with each other? It's usually by common interests, common background, common hobbies. You know, and if things get too different, if there's not some clear sense of commonality, there's really no reason to be united. But obviously, the emphasis of the text is we are united by a commonality of Christ, right? That's really what a binding agent that holds us together. So there's a diversity of members and the nature of these members, especially you look at verse um, 13, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, um, all were made to drink of one spirit. And God designed the members of Christ's body to have drastically diverse functions And yet all of these functions have equal value in God's kingdom and in his body. What do you think about like a Jew and a Greek, right? So in 1 Corinthians, you imagine that the Corinthian church maybe had some Jewish members, maybe there's some Gentile members. And think about how difficult it would be for a Jew and a Gentile to have unified commonality and to find some kind of interconnected commonality between them, right? But imagine in this age of time where when the church was beginning that there were miraculous abilities that the apostles had given to the church. I want you to imagine that, let's say, a Jew had the ability to interpret a tongue, a language. And imagine a Gentile Christian, so you know both Christians, right? So imagine a Gentile Christian has the miraculous ability to speak in any language, right? And what this is saying is that one person may have the gift of speaking in a different language and another person has the ability to then interpret that language. Imagine a Jew is learning his dependence on a Gentile that for him to use his ability requires dependence on that Gentile, right? 
And so they're learning that there are different functions, but mutual codependent value within the body and its diversity. And as they use these gifts, as they submit to each other and serve each other, they are learning to be unified the way that God designed through the diversity that he designed. So we're going to see yet in this diversity, God designed each member of Christ's body to be equally essential and valuable. So let's read, let's read verses um, 15 through 20 here. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it, it is not for this reason any less part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer. Well, I've read farther than I meant to. So we'll read, we'll read that uh, in a second, 21 through 26. But focusing on 15 through 20. I want you to think about the tabernacle, okay? Think about a socket of silver. So you imagine a socket of silver, you know, it's on the bottom of the walls. Imagine him thinking, you know what? Every time a priest comes in here, he's always looking at his reflection in the boards on the walls. He's always interacting with the table and the lampstand. And here I am getting no attention at all, and yet I'm being crushed by the weight of this structure, and I'm getting no appreciation at all. I wish I was somewhere else in some other part of this structure. Can you imagine that? Or how about the covering of goat hair? You imagine those clasps of bronze thinking, I'm suffocating between these um, coverings, and I don't see the point of why I'm even here. Nobody even sees me. Nobody can even notice me at all. And there's 50 other parts here, so I just don't seem very important in comparison to something like an altar of incense, right? Can you see that? And yet every single piece of the tabernacle structure, what unified them together? Did they all really have different values? I mean, a clasp of bronze, just from like a worldly perspective, is that as, like as, um, does, it, does that have the worth of a uh, pillar of gold? From a worldly view, a pillar of gold, that's like thousands and thousands of dollars and a clasp of bronze, like you get that like a dollar store or something, right? Um, so what unified them together? The, the idea is they were all consecrated as holy. You never see God distinguish himself saying, yeah, you know, there's more important parts of the tabernacle. There's less important parts. They were all equally important. Taking it even further, imagine if the Levites were carrying the tabernacle and because they thought, you know what? What I'm carrying is heavy. And again, these class of bronze, there's 50 of them. Let me lighten the load and throw away 10. Who's going to notice? I mean, it's still going to hold together just fine. And, you know, 40 class, that'll hold it together all right. And who's going to notice anyway if 10 of them are missing? And it's going to make things easier on me if I don't have to carry all this weight, right? Would that be okay? So again, the diversity in the tabernacle, everything was equally essential and valuable. It's by our own estimation that we differentiate the values of things that ultimately belong to God and are all holy. Look at verse 21 through 26 again. So I'll start again at 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, 
And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there would be no division in the body, just, but that the members would have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So everybody has equal value, especially those that seem, by our estimation, weak or less honorable. So I want you to think about this. When I was younger, if I would like visit an area or like if I was thinking about the idea of placing membership with a new local church, what kind of standards do you think I would have? So I would think, well, I want to place membership if I have options. I want to be with the Christians that I connect with most easily. Maybe it's because like our sense of humor is like the same. So like, yeah, we easily laugh together or maybe our jobs, our upbringing, maybe that's really similar. So we just, we connect so easily because of that, right? Did you know that's not God's design? And did you know that serving the unity of a church may mean that there are no commonalities that you have with the members of that church except Christ as your central bond? Because God designed his church not to be united through a lack of diversity, but through the highest form of diversity. Again, think about Jews, Gentiles, and just how hard that would be for them to find some sense of connection. Your bond is Christ. And because of that, your roles have the same value. Your place has the same value. And again, you notice verse 23 through 25, this is an honor that we have to willingly show. And God has deliberately designed his church to function in this way. You notice in verse 24 again in the middle, but God has so composed the body that there would be members that from our estimation again, well, they're not as valuable. But then others, well, well, clearly that person's more valuable. That's not the way that the church or the structure of the tabernacle was designed. Let's look at verse, or back to Exodus 26. If you'll turn back there, I want to look at the importance of how things were joined together in a tabernacle. And I just want to generally point out here how deliberate this was in how the body of the tabernacle was structured. Um, Exodus 26. I want to start with verse 11 as kind of the platform for this point, and then we'll kind of, I just, I'll point out very briefly where else we see this. But look at verse 11. Uh, this is Exodus 26 again. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze. Let's talk about the curtains of goat's hair. And you shall put the clasps into the loops. Notice this. And join the tent together so that it will be a unit. Everything had to be joined, knit, clasped together. Back in verse 3, five curtains shall be joined to one another. The other five curtains shall be joined to one another. Look in verse 5, it emphasizes the same thing again, that things are needing to be joined together, clasped together. Look at verse 9, you shall join five curtains by themselves, and there's six curtains, so that's with the second layer with goat's hair. I want you to look at verse 17, where I mentioned the tenons. There shall be two tenons for each board fitted to one another. Look at verse 24 now. They shall be double beneath, and together they shall complete it to its top of the first ring. Thus it shall be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. So that's the idea of like the boards and the corners on the back of the tabernacle, things being fitted together with rings, being joined in. 
Um, look at verse 28. The middle bars, so this is the bars that would hold the walls together more tightly. It says, you shall make uh, the middle bar in the center of the board shall pass through from end to end. So again, this was a very deliberate joining together that it was made to need to be joined together. Look at verse 32 through 33. You shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold on four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps. So again, everything was designed to need to be joined to something else very deliberately and there needed to be material that was actually clasping, joining these things together so that the structure could fit strongly as a whole. I want you to see just how this language fits with Colossians chapter 2. Turn to Colossians chapter 2 and we'll just look at the first two verses here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. So the idea we'll see here is that this idea of being knit together, that the binding agent is the discipline and the practice of love and faith that joins us together as Christ's body. Colossians 2, 1 and 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. Okay, so think about the tabernacle again, right? What if they created all of the pieces, right? So everything was made as God designed, and there the pieces lay on the ground, and they say, voila, it's finished. Or let's say they set it up, but they don't actually join anything together. The tabernacle was designed where if they did not join it and fit it, it was all going to collapse. There's a sense where it was actually a fragile structure, even though it was a strong structure, because if things weren't being fitted, there's like, let's see, 20, 40, 48. There's 48 boards. Imagine even one single board is pulling the rest down. What are all the rest of the boards going to do? They're going to cave in on themselves, and it's curtains on the ceiling, not a hard ceiling. The curtain's going to get all messed up. So imagine if, if things aren't being joined together, the whole structure, despite its design, is going to collapse. So what if we, as the body of Christ, right, what if God has made us himself, a body to be members of one another. But we are not practicing the discipline of love that binds us together. Can that structure remain strong and stable? It definitely can, right? Look further at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, where this is emphasized again. Uh, chapter 3, 12 through 14. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Right? So again, how are we to be to knit together? How are we supposed to fulfill this great illustration of the tabernacle? It is by applying in faith love toward one another. Without that, there is no bond. Even if God, like... 1 Corinthians 12. He's made us a body. When we were baptized into Christ, we were joined in with it, and God has designed it to be united, but without deliberately choosing to fulfill that function. The structure collapses, right? Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Romans 12, 3 through 8. And this will also kind of pull on the idea of diversity again, that these diverse materials 
how they're all being fitted and joined in with each other to make a strong structure. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think is to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, or one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So, okay, think about the tabernacle again, right? And the idea in the text is God has given us each a special function within the body here. I think this is really speaking to how a local church serves as a body to function together, to have unity. But God has given us gifts to be used in serving as members of one another. And some of those gifts can be harder maybe to personally like understand or even see in others. Like think about the end of verse 8, mercy. That's probably one of the more difficult gifts that someone may have to notice that someone excels particularly in showing mercy. But how important is it? Think about just the character of Christ. How important is it to excel in giving mercy? You know, and someone like that, they may feel like a bronze clasp, right? Like nobody notices me. Here I am in the background. And did you know that a lot of those pieces in the tabernacle, their function is even to support and help to stand upright other pieces of the structure, right? So there's a diversity of gifts where, sure, maybe some people will be more noticeable in exercising their gift, but does that mean they're more valuable than the other pieces of that structure? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Every piece needs to learn to exercise its function for the unity of the body. And again, any piece of the structure, whether the curtain, the pillars, the boards, sockets, there was many of each one. There, besides like the objects inside, which I think more foreshadow Christ, whereas the structure is more the body surrounding Christ, there's many of each one. So you could think like, well, there's other people teaching, or there's other people doing this, or other people seem to do it better. Well, find your place, right? So a person could think, you know, there's, just, there's other people who are serving the body and holding it together. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And this will be the, the last scripture we'll look at here to kind of pull the ideas together. But the idea with the structure is not that, yeah, there's like a lot of sockets, but, you know, as long as a few of them are doing their thing, the rest of them don't really matter. They don't even need to be put in. Or like, again, I know I keep bringing up the class, but I think those are the most easy to not think like, what's the point? You know, 50 class, and you think like, well, 40, 49. You know, it's like, they're not all important, are they? Every single one, every one that was made is holy and precious and serves a necessary function. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, 15 through 16. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Notice, notice this language here. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each 
individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So I want to ask you this. Is every part important? And I think in Romans 12, when you see, let not a person think more highly than himself than he ought to think. That could come in the form of, well, I'm so important that I'm more important than others. Maybe that's more obvious, right? I think another way that we can be arrogant is I'm not as important as God says I am. It's not important for me to be interconnected with the body or to be producing more of a spirit of codependence within the body. It's not very important for me to be invested in the growth of the local body. Both are thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. If God says he has given you personally a gift, personally, to be used in the unifying structure of the body, if he has said each individual part must be doing its share, then it's arrogant to think otherwise. All of this is illustrated with the tabernacle. One of the amazing things in verse 16, though, this is not a stagnant structure. What does God say will happen if we are truly each in whatever weak way we may be trying to? Because again, there's not some black and white standard where you need to be doing this much or you need to be doing that much. If each person is just by faith doing what they can and making it a faithful effort, what does God say he'll do with that? It will cause the growth of the structure for the building up of itself in love. How important is that? That's what God has called us to be as a body of Christ. And that's, that's the lesson. Um, so again, I hope that this has both helped you see what the tabernacle was, why that was important, and why it's also important for us as well. And just how amazing it is that in the Old Testament, these places in scripture that we may want to read over, and by that I mean not read, these contain, if we'll just slowly, I don't know, just take it in and come back to it from time to time, there, there are profound lessons that hammer in very important concepts of our faith and relationships now. If you're here and you're convicted that you need to become a child of God, um, come forward this morning and don't delay. Talk to somebody later. Just don't let the day go by without becoming a part of Christ's kingdom and becoming a child of his. If there's anything else we can do for you this morning to encourage you in your faith, please bring it forward while we stand and sing the imitation song.